Well, as I mentioned, we're going to be looking at the doctrine of the fall of man. But before we do so, I want to pray once more. It's always important to make sure that we are asking God to go before us in his Holy Spirit and to work in us. Let's pray. Father, we've now come to the point where we seek to open your word and have you speak to us. Lord, to the world, the preaching of your word seems foolish. But to those of us who are in Christ, we know that it is the power of God. We know that one word from your lips can break a stony heart and bring life. It can wake a slumbering heart. It can compel a lazy heart. And it can help a fiery heart burn even hotter. We ask now, God, that you would minister to us greatly by your Holy Spirit through your Holy Word, that our minds would be inclined to heavenly matters, that our eyes would be opened to glorious truths, that we would be united as one body in Christ, that we would be satisfied, fully satisfied with your love, and that you would lead us into all truth. May the words of my mouth be pleasing in your sight now, God. And we ask Holy Spirit for a powerful moving in our hearts so that we would be conformed into the image of Jesus Christ. It's in his name we pray. Amen. George Woodfield is probably one of the greatest evangelists the world has ever known. To read his sermons is a powerful experience. You can tell even by his, the words recorded that he spoke that it was a man that was well acquainted with his Savior, but a man that was also well acquainted with his sin. And he said the following, quote, The fall of man is written in two legible characters not to be understood. Those that deny it, by their denying it, prove it. Let me read that one more time. Listen to what he's saying here. The fall of man is written in two legible characters not to be understood. Those that deny it, by their denying it, prove it. What he's saying is the fall, the sinfulness of humanity is written far too clearly for anybody to say they can't see it, they can't understand it. And those people that deny the sinfulness of humanity by their very denial show it to be true. And so that is what I want us to look at this evening. The fallen state of man. But in order to do so, we first have to start before the fall happened. And so we need to go back to the very beginning. We need to go back to Genesis chapters one and two. And we need to look at something called the covenant of works. As followers of Christ, we worship a God who relates to us in a series of covenants. And the first covenant that God interacts with humanity is called the covenant of works. Now, by quick review, Genesis one, God brings the entire world into existence 
And then in verses 26 and 27, we hear him saying that he is going to make man in his image, male and female, he'll create them. And then he tells them to, to be fruitful and multiply and fill and subdue the earth. And in Genesis chapter 2, we see the beginning of the covenant. In Genesis chapter 2, verse 16, God says the following. And Yahweh God commanded the man saying, from any tree of the garden you may surely eat. But from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat from it. For in the day that you eat from it, you will surely die. This is the covenant of works right here. Now, we first have to define what exactly is a covenant. A covenant is a relationship that God makes with his people that has blessings, obligations, and potential consequences. Here we see God making this covenant with Adam, and he says that if Adam walks in obedience to God, and this obedience demonstrated by not eating of this tree, then he will have eternal life. That's the blessing. That's the promise. The obligation, don't eat from it. The consequence, though, if you eat from this tree, you will surely die. And not simply Adam, this covenant of works is important for us because what, a, what God is seeking to covenant with Adam will have affect all of humanity thereafter. All of those who come after Adam will either receive this blessing or this consequence, depending on how Adam responds to the covenant. We see that this is actually a covenant. Some, have, some hold that this is not. But if you were to turn to the book of Hosea, Specifically, Hosea chapter 6. We see there that it is spoken of as a covenant. Hosea 6 7 reads, But like Adam, they have trans trespassed against the covenant. There they have dealt treacherously against me. We see reference to a covenant with Adam. Now this tree, this is an important thing. I was recently reading a uh, reading the scriptures with my our son, and we were sitting there reading, and he was using a new wonderful children's Bible that is very in depth, very good by Kevin D. Young. And they called the tree of the knowledge of good and evil the testing tree. Because that's what this tree is. It stands there in the garden as a test for Adam. Adam, what will you do? This covenant and this testing tree. If Adam responds obediently in the positive then he and all, all, all created people after him will enter into a deeper understanding and relationship with God. But if they transgress, they will fall away and receive the consequences of death. 
Now, it's interesting. Some people also recognize that there is the tree of life in the garden. And so I just, I want to address something that I've been seeing recently. Some people have been espousing that Adam and Eve were actually eating of the tree of life prior during this time. If Adam and Eve were eating from the tree of life prior to the fall, then when the fall happened, they wouldn't have died because they would have already eaten from it. So there are these two trees, but one of them is the testing tree. And this tree is important because this tree has a purpose. It's the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. This tree is speaking to the possibility of maturity, Christian maturity. That phrase, good and evil, is often associated with spiritual maturity. We see it in the book of Deuteronomy, chapter 1. In Deuteronomy, chapter 1, verse 39, it reads, Moreover, your little ones who you said would become plunder and your sons who this day have no knowledge of good or evil. No knowledge of good or evil. We see there's an association there with maturity. We see it in Isaiah chapter seven. Verses 15 and 16. He will eat curds and honey in order that he will know to refuse evil and choose good. Again, good and evil, this association with the ability to have maturity. Or in 2 Samuel chapter 14, verses 17 and 20. Then your ser- chapter verse 17, then your servant woman said, please let the word of my Lord, the king, be a resting place. For as the angels of God, so is my Lord the King to listen with discernment through the good and evil. And may know Yahweh your God be with you. Verse 20. In order to change the appearance of things, your servant Joab has done this thing. But my Lord is wise, like the wisdom of the angel of God, to know all that is in the earth. This phrase, good and evil, appears all the time throughout scriptures because it's going back to that moment in the garden where God gave this covenant with Adam and he's calling Adam to respond in obedience. And if he is obedient, he will grow in the maturity. Specifically, he will grow mature in righteousness. You see, maturity was going to happen one way or the other. They were either going to mature in their understanding of righteousness or they were going to mature in their understanding of wickedness, but mature they will. They were never to remain in the infancy stage of knowledge that they were brought into the garden. Sadly, in Genesis 3, the serpent appears. He approaches Eve and he deceives Eve and she eats. And Adam's there right alongside her. She gives to Adam and he eats. Adam should have stepped in when the serpent first started talking. He should have crushed the head of the serpent, but he was silent. Maybe he was interested as well. And then he, even after Eve ate, he could have responded in obedience and said, no, I will not eat. But he does. And so God created them holy and upright. But by one act, one simple bite of a fruit, 
They're no longer holy and upright. They're no longer able to be in relationship with God in the garden. Adam chose to sin against God freely. He wasn't forced. He wasn't ignorant. God had already told him not to and what would happen, but he did. And so God must keep his word and bring about death. And that is exactly what happens. Genesis 3 tells us that in that moment, humanity died an instantaneous death spiritually. At that moment, Adam and Eve died to all things righteous and godly, and their bodies would follow thereafter. And I think what makes this whole story of the fall of man so difficult for the world to really wrap their head around and so difficult to understand the gravity and the seriousness of the actions of Adam and Eve is that people are in love with freedom. We're Americans. We love freedom. But the reality is the natural man, the natural woman, apart from faith in Christ, doesn't love freedom. They idolize freedom. People operate with this belief that they are entitled to be completely autonomous and that no one can tell them what they can or cannot do. That they are their own boss. There is no authority over me. So to be more pointed, I think our love of freedom is absolutely, a a love of freedom often leads to a worship of sin. And the reason I say that is because sin tells us that we are free individuals and we are our own authority and no one has, can tell you what to do. That's essentially what's happening here in the garden. Did God actually say? It's a question. It's an attack on the word and authority of God. Eve, you're your own. Eve, you should be a strong, independent woman. Don't let God tell you what to do. He's trying to oppress you and just tell you to get back in the kitchen. The serpent is trying to tell Eve, essentially, you need to rise up as a strong feminist woman. Make your own choices. Adam, how dare you lift up your voice and tell your wife, no. You guys are free. Don't let God lord over you. Sin itself, at its heart, is a desire to have total independence from God. If you think about what sin is, when you sin, what you are saying is, I am an independent free being to do whatever I want without any reference point to God. Not only is sin a desire to have independence from God, but it's it's also a move to have equal authority to God. That's the danger of sin. Sin takes the authority that God rightly has as God and portrays it as a bad thing. And it, takes, it tells you that freedom, which you don't really have, is something you do have. Here's the reality. Nobody's free. Everybody's a slave. You're either a slave to righteousness or a slave to sin. And so this idea that there is a God who's telling us what to do, and simply because we saw a tree that looked appealing to the eyes and we ate a piece of fruit, that now all humanity is condemned, is a really hard pill to swallow in a country that says we're all about freedom. 
Could it be, just a question to consider, could it be that we have boasted of our freedom as a country so loudly that it has actually become a barrier to people acknowledging the lordship of Christ? I'm not saying we shouldn't have freedoms, but I'm saying we have fallen so in love with freedom that the concept of the lordship and authority of Christ becomes a hard pill to swallow. And we need to guard against that. So with that foundation, we see, we can talk about the doctrine of the fall of man. And a theological term for us to understand is called original sin. Now, when people hear the term original sin, they often think, well, that was the first action, that, that was the first sinful thing done, but that's not what it means. Original sin refers to the consequence of Adam and Eve eating from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. It refers to the sinful nature that we have inherited from Adam's transgression in the garden. Adam at that moment you could say that the divine principles, right? The governing, you could say that the Holy Spirit that was within Adam, the divine governing principles at the moment of eating the fruit were removed from Adam. And ever since then, everyone that came after Adam by natural means, and that's an important term as we talk about original sin, by natural means. This is why the Lord Jesus Christ does not have a sin nature because Jesus came into the world, but not by natural means. Mary was impregnated by the Holy Spirit. Every human being by natural means comes into this world with a sin nature. We are all conceived in sin. Psalm 51 verse 5. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity and in sin my mother conceived me. David, who wrote Psalm 51, is saying, from the time he was in the womb, he already was conceived in sin. He had a sin nature. Or Job chapter 14, verse 4. Who can make the clean out of the unclean? No one. No one. Original sin means we were born into this world unclean, stained with sin. That means each person will die. You come into this world and the timer starts. From the moment you're born, if you were to think one of those hourglasses where, the, where you flip it over and, and the sand is dripping off, from the moment that child is born, the grains of sand start falling toward death. And the reason they're falling toward death is because they have inherited a sin nature because sin has entered the world through Adam. And not only that, sin has entered every part of their being. So this is also, we can look at later on, the doctrine of total depravity. Because of the sin of Adam and the sin nature you've inherited from Adam, there is not one part of your being, the totality of who you are, that is not touched and tainted by sin. That does not mean you are as sinful as you can be, but it does mean every part of you is sinful. 
It means that you and I, because of original sin, the sin nature, you have no natural desire for God. Nobody comes into this world desiring God. Desiring righteousness. Everybody comes into this world and they're running down a one-way street towards sin. Unable to do a U-turn even if they desired by their own natural means. A good illustration for this, because I hear some people say, wait a minute. So you're telling me what Adam did in the garden thousands of years ago now affects me. That doesn't seem fair. I didn't eat the fruit. He did. One, had you been in the garden, you would have done no different. Two, you believe in that, in that principle. You're just not seeing it. Think of a sports. I think sports is a great analogy for this. Fourth quarter, two minutes on the clock. You got a two-point lead. Play basketball here. Steph Curry, probably the greatest three-point shooter in the NBA, post up for a three-pointer, and the guy just shoves him. Flagrant foul, knocks him down. You didn't foul the guy. That other guy did. Who gets penalized? The entire team. Because that one player represents the team in its totality. Just jeopardized the whole game for all of us. Adam committed a foul, a flagrant foul. But because we are all in Adam, we're all in team Adam, we all have suffered the penalty of that foul. Listen to some verses that make this abundantly clear. Some of them are very, very familiar. Some maybe not. Romans 3.23, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Not some, all. Or Romans chapter 5, starting at verse 12 through 19. Therefore, just as through one man sin entered the world and death through sin, and so death spread to all men, because all sinned. For until the law, sin was in the world, but sin is not imputed when there's no law. Nevertheless, death reigned from Adam until Moses, even over those who had not sinned in the likenesses or trespass of Adam, who is a type of him who is to come. We can go on, but it just outlines all of us are identified with Adam's sin. Or 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Starting at verse 21. For since by a man came death, by a man also came the resurrection into the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ all will be made alive. In Adam all die. That's verses 21 and 22. And we will get to this, but here's the thing. If you think it's unfair that Adam represented you in the garden, then you should think it's equally unfair that Christ represented you on the cross. You can't have one and not the other. Also in 1 Corinthians 15, verse 45. So also, it is written, the first man, Adam, became a living soul. The last Adam became a life-giving spirit. Jump down to verse 49. And just as we have borne the image of the earthly, we also bear the image of the heavenly. He's drawing a connection there between the first Adam and the second Adam that we are represented by both if we are united to him by faith.
but the sin nature that we've inherited from him. Listen to Genesis 6, 5, just a couple chapters into the Bible. We're six chapters in, and we've already made a mess of things. We're three chapters, and we made a mess of things. Chapter 4, the first murder. Chapter 6, verse 5, then Yahweh saw that the evil of man was great on the earth, and that every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. Every thought. That's six chapters into the Bible. We've seen disobedience, murder, and every thought is against God. Or how about Jeremiah chapter 17? You know, one of the, before I read the verse, it's so funny to me because I hear people all the time, well, God knows my heart. Yeah, that's the problem. <laughs> that's the problem. He knows your heart. God knows my heart. You should be scared. Jeremiah 17, 9. The heart is more deceitful than all else and is desperately sick. Who can know it? Your heart is deceitful. It lies to you. John Calvin said the heart is an idol factory. You have a sin nature that you've inherited from Adam. And so naturally, apart from God's regenerating work in your life, you are opposed to all things holy. Perhaps no chapter makes this more clear than Romans chapter 3. Romans chapter 3 verses 10 through 19 should shut the mouths of every person who thinks that somehow they're special enough to choose God on their own. You need God to do a heart transplant. Listen to Romans 3 starting at verse 10. As it is written, there is none righteous, not even one. There is none who understands. There is none who seeks after God. All have turned aside. Together they've become worthless. There is none who does good. There is not even one. Their throat is an open tomb. And with their tongues, they keep deceiving. The poison of asps is under their lips whose mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Destruction and misery are in their paths. And the path of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. That is the biography of every single person born into this world since Adam. That means... Everybody comes into this world as a child of wrath. There's this weird, distorted belief that everybody's a child of God. That's not true. Everybody's got a created by God, but not everybody's a child of God. Everybody born into this world is a child of wrath because they have a dark, corrupt, dead, God-hating heart. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 3. In which you formerly walked, according to the course of this world, according to the ruler of the power of the air, the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. Jesus in John's gospel, I just thought of, I can't think of where, says you are of your father, the devil. This is why we have the doctrine of adoption. Because we are not naturally children of God. We're children of the devil. And we have to be adopted into God's family after we are born again by the grace of God in our lives. 
So you have a sinful nature, you have sinful desires, and you wear shackles on your hands and feet and heart because you are a slave to sin. Listen to Romans chapter 6. Romans chapter 6, verse 20. For when you were slaves of sin, you were free in regard to righteousness. Slaves. That's everybody. And it all started, why? Because of a fruit on a tree that Adam and Eve ate. Lest we ever need remembrance, most of us have a reminder right on the back of our phones. Little apple with a bite from it. You ever think about that? It's a constant reminder. And we flaunt it. It's not a complete apple. There's a there's a bite missing. Why they designed it that way, I don't know, but it's just interesting. Isn't that? One bite through the whole world into the depths of depravity. Because that tree was a tree of testing. It would either test and show you to pursue maturity and righteousness maturity and wickedness. And this sin nature, this original sin is the root of all our other sins. You're not a sinner because you sin. You sin because you're a sinner. Listen to what it says in the book of James chapter one. In James chapter one, verses 14 and 15. But each one is tempted when he is carried away and enticed by his own lusts. Then when lust is conceived, it gives birth to sin. And when sin is fully matured, it brings forth death. It's in there. It's producing it. You're you're tempting yourself to sin. It's your heart. Jesus talks about this in Matthew chapter 15, verse 19. Matthew 15, 19. For out of the heart... Come evil thoughts, murders, adulteries, sexual moralities, thefts, false witnesses, slanders. These are the things which defile the man. It comes out of the heart. What you do sinfully just reveals what you are inwardly. This is why it talks about receiving a new heart of flesh. This is why we need a new nature. This is why we must be born again. Because naturally on our own, We love sin and hate God. We love darkness and hate light. So I want to outline the natural man's post-Genesis 3 reality. I want you to see who you are if you are not covered by the blood and righteousness of the Lord Jesus Christ. The first, you are a debased individual. Listen to Romans one twenty eight. And just as they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them over to an unfit mind or a debased mind to do those things which are not proper. You're debased in, at, the, at, at, the, at the mind level. Your, your mind is debased. You're also hardened. Second Corinthians 
chapter 3, verse 14. But their minds were hardened. For until this very day at the reading of the Old Covenant, the same veil remains unlifted. The way you think is debased. The way you think is hardened against holy things of God. Again, 2 Corinthians chapter 4, you're also blinded. 2 Corinthians 4, 4. In whose case the God of this age has blinded the minds of the unbelieving so that they may not see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. Apart from God's regenerating work, your brain cannot understand spiritual truth. You just can't. You would have a better chance of trying to go learn a, to read a foreign language without ever having studied it than picking up the word of God and understanding it in a God-honoring, salvific manner. You just can't. It's an impossibility. This is why seeker services are ineffective. Because the natural man does not seek after God, nor can he understand the things of God. This is why we don't water down our worship services, our preaching, our singing, our praying. This is why we don't make it more palatable to the unsaved individual because they don't have taste buds to savor the beauty and richness of God. Their minds cannot comprehend the things of God. Faith comes through hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. So instead of watering it down, just proclaim it more loudly, boldly, powerfully. Going on. The natural man is also a man subjected to futility. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 17. Therefore, this I say, and testify in the Lord that you walk no longer as the Gentiles also walk in the futility of their mind. The natural man is also hostile. Colossians 1.21. And although you were formerly alienated and enemies in mind and in evil deeds, you were an enemy of God. Nobody's neutral to God. You either love him or you hate him, but there's no spiritual Switzerland. You're also deluded. Colossians chapter 2, verse 4. I say this so that no one will delude you with persuasive argument. The natural man is easily pulled away and deluded by worldly beliefs and systems and ideologies. Colossians chapter 2, verse 8, you're deceived naturally. See to it that no one takes you captive through philosophy and empty deception, according to the traditions of men, according to the elementary principles of the world. This is what the world <laughs> peddles. This is what the world markets. The world preaches. We have lots of preachers in the world, but they preach deception. Every philosophy that is not grounded in the Lord Jesus Christ, every message that is not founded on the word in the person of Jesus Christ is a message, a philosophy, an ideology, a sermon of deception. Because that is all the natural man knows, deception. And why? Because they're depraved. 
1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 5. And constant friction between men of depraved mind and deprived of truth. He's talking here about instructions and how to, how to engage. And he refers to the men in the world as being depraved mind. Godless minds. The natural man apart from God's regenerating work is also defiled. Titus chapter 1, verse 15. To the pure, all things are pure. But to those who are defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure. But both their mind and their consciences are defiled. The very conscience, right? Your conscience should be like your moral ethical alarm system. The moral ethical alarm system of the natural man is defiled. It doesn't work properly. It doesn't awaken you to what it should be awakened. And lastly, the post-Genesis 3 reality of the natural man is that they are corrupted. Listen to 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 8. 2 Timothy 3, 8. But just as Janus and Jambres opposed Moses, so these men also opposed the truth Men of depraved mind disqualified in regard to the faith. Corruption to the very core. It's like a computer system that catches a virus that corrupts the entire hard drive. Nothing works. The virus spreads and affects everything. That is who you are. If you are not covered by the blood of Christ and have received by faith the imputed righteousness of Christ, that's you. Put that in your Facebook bio. That's who you are. That's who I am. And we have to understand that honestly, because if we don't understand this, we're going to have a lower view of Jesus and what he's done and a higher view of ourselves. And it's going to affect everything we think, say, do, and desire. This is why feel-good, self-help, encouraging preaching doesn't profit anyone at all because it pulls them away from Jesus and pulls them further in to this post-Genesis 3 mindset. That's a hard word, I know. But I think if we look around in the culture and we see what's happening to churches and we see, and if things Unless God graciously does a revival in America and just a a world revival. The world is seeking to quiet the church, seeking to continue to push us closer, further, further into the corner, into the darkness until they can just lock the closet door and be done with us. If we don't resolve that this is the reality of the human condition, And we have nothing to offer them. The natural man recognizes something's broken. They don't know what it is or why it's broken. So what do they think is going to fix it? More government programs, more government school, more moral reform, more human freedom and liberty. Every attempt that the world tries to fix a problem that they're not 
properly diagnosing only compounds the problem. But the only way to truly bring a solution to the world is for the, us to know who they are and who we are apart from the Lord Jesus Christ. This is why the doctrine of the fall of man that began with Adam is so necessary. Because if you get the starting point wrong, everything else you do will be wrong. Man is not a victim. Man was not morally wounded. Man is an enemy who gave himself a self-inflicted suicide shot. Man is not desperately trying to crawl his way back to God. Man is laying brick by brick by brick by brick to build a bigger, higher wall to keep the things of God away. And as illogical as it sounds, as foolish as it sounds, which is what 1 Corinthians says, the way that we break down the walls, the way that the dead natural man is revived, the way that an, an enemy of God becomes a son or daughter of God is first by letting them know that they are radically sinful in every part of their being. Because until man is humble to that realization, he has no hope. There's no hope. This is why this doctrine is so important. This is why before telling people, Jesus loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life, we have to start with the reality. The reality is no. If you are not in Christ, he doesn't love you. He does not love you in a saving manner. You are a child of the devil and God looks at you as a judge looks at a criminal. But by the grace of God, he made a way. In and through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, who took upon flesh, fully God, fully man, lived a perfectly sinful life, died a death on the cross that he didn't deserve because of what exactly what he said, that he was the only way. And on that cross, as we'll celebrate here in a few, in like two weeks, God poured out all his holy wrath against sin upon him who never committed sin, so that in him, by faith, we could become the righteousness of God. But it begins by understanding who we are in Adam, the first Adam. Because until we understand the first Adam, we have no part with the second Adam, who is the Lord Jesus. But I also have to make clear that even those of us who by faith are in Christ does not mean we're free from sin. We are free from the penalty of sin. But the power and presence of sin is still at work in our lives. It's still at work in the flesh, as Paul says. Listen to what he says in Romans chapter 7, verse 18. For I know that nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh. For the willing is present in me, but the working out of good is not. Verse 20, jump down to verse 23. But I see a different law in my members, waging war against the law of my mind and making me a captive to the law of sin, which is in my members. Paul's recognizing, I have faith in Christ. I have the Holy Spirit, but this natural body of mine is still pushing against righteousness. And so I'm still fighting with sin until the day I die and Christ takes me home. Or if you were to go to Ecclesiastes, Chapter 7, Ecclesiastes chapter 7, verse 20. 
Indeed, there is not a righteous man on earth who continuously does good and who never sins. Even in this new nature that we have, the flesh is still fighting and we still sin. Everybody loves 1 John 1, 9. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. That is a beautiful promise. But let's not forget the verse that came right before it. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. We have to rightly acknowledge that we still sin. This truth of the, of the fall of the doctrine of the fall of man reminds us that on this side of eternity, none of us will ever be perfect. We all sin. Perfection is the standard, but is a standard we will never attain. And so our only hope is to trust in the one who is the perfect standard, the Lord Jesus. And so there's two types of people. We have the individual who is perhaps like a Pharisee. I'm pretty good because I check all the right boxes outwardly. I do all the right things. I don't miss a devotional. I give my prayers three times a day. I change church every Sunday. I don't curse. I don't drink. I don't even watch PG-13 movies. I'm righteous. So that individual, this doctrine of the fall of man reminds you that the outside of the cup may be clean, but the inside is filthy because your heart still has sin in it. Let it humble you to not think so highly of yourself and let it humble you to a place of repentance that inwardly there may be still work to do. Do not rest ever on the false assurances of outward behaviors. But there are some who are not Pharisees. There are some who genuinely are crippled, paralyzed, by the reality of sin in their life to such a degree that they believe there's no way I have faith in Jesus, but there's no way he can love me. There's no way he approves of me. I can't even lift my head in prayer because I'm so vile. They have true saving faith, but they are so crippled by this truth of sin that they miss the other half of the gospel to them. I would say, Brother or sister, you will never be sinless, but by faith in Christ and the receiving of the Holy Spirit who lives in you, you will sin less. He who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Christ Jesus. It's Philippians 1.6. The doctrine of the fall of man is important. The natural man is a wretch, is a slave to sin, and rightly deserves the full wrath of God to be poured on them for all eternity. Why? Because God is infinitely glorious. So an attack on an infinitely glorious, worthy God deserves an infinite punishment. That was what the natural man deserves because the doctrine of the fall. That's what happened when our first parents ate from the tree. Now, even as I, I think about this, right, I was a youth pastor for a while. I've been in conversations with men and some women. Here's the interesting thing when we talk about the doctrine of the fall of man, which is pointing to the doctrine of sin. 
so many times people's eyes kind of glaze over and don't really, aren't really affected by it. <laughs> yeah, I know. Obviously you don't. Obviously you don't. If this seems like just old news to you, if this doesn't burden and pull upon the strings of your heart, if this hearing these truths in your mind is still able to wander and think of other things, if you think, here we go, fundamentalist, legalistic teachings, then brother and sister, I would submit before you that you are in a very dangerous place because sin has a knife to your neck and it is about to slit your throat and you're going to bleed out. The doctrine of the reality of our sin should never be boring. It should always be breaking us. And if you are bored by the doctrine of sin, then you really don't understand the holiness and beauty of Christ. For some odd reason in that garden, Adam and Eve, who walked with God and saw him in ways we have yet to see him, thought the fruit was more delighting to the eyes than God was. And they ate. And ever since then, our eyes sparkle and dance and are enticed by so many things. And we find them more delightful than God. And we need to repent of that. The first Adam failed at the tree of testing. But the second Adam succeeded at the tree of substitution. He is our only hope. Jesus Christ. The God man. The one who never for one second had a sinful thought, a sinful action, a sinful desire. The one who always loved God the Father perfectly and everything that he thought, said, did, and desired the one who could have defended himself and called on a legion of angels as he was wrongly accused and tried and sentenced, the one who is as silent as a lamb before the slaughter, the one who was, as he was nailed on the cross and bleeding out, said, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. The God, the Son, who had a glory like we never could imagine and gave up some of that glory to come and save rebels. The one who on the cross, who had always had perfect fellowship with his father, said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Because in that moment, he takes upon this entire reality of sin. And God, the father looks on Jesus' humanity and says, I can't even look upon you. That's how vile sin is. The father says, I can't even look on my son because he bears the sin of sinful man. And then he dies. That's your only hope. Because he rose from the dead three days later, overcoming the power of sin and death. You only see the beauty in the cross if you see the darkness that happened in the garden. This is why this doctrine matters. Because you can't preach the gospel without it. Let's pray. Father, we come before you. And the fact that we could even come before you right now in the name of Christ and call you Father and dare lift our voices in your presence speaks to the extravagant grace that you have shown us in Christ. Because as it, if it is not for the Lord Jesus, we have nothing by which to approach you. We should be hiding. 
as it says in Revelation, we should be designed for mountains to fall upon us to hide us from you. And yet, all this wickedness we've seen this evening, you said you have put as far as the east from the west, that you put it to the bottom of the sea, and that when you look upon us, you only see the perfect spotless character, nature, life of your son, because our life is hidden with Christ. And so, Father, I pray for anyone here, maybe who has never truly seen their sin, that that they're seeing it now, Lord, that you would just radically decimate them so that they would run full steam to Christ. If somebody here is not a believer, Lord, that they would see this is who they are. That standing next to a holy God, they truly are a monster of sin. But they don't have to be. For there is hope found and the blood of Christ. And then for all of us here who are followers of Jesus, give us a deeper understanding, conviction, desire for repentance of the reality of the fall of man that we are part of. Because the greater, Lord, you allow us to understand the depravity of us, the sin, the fall of man, what took place in the garden has plunged humanity since then, the greater we understand that the more we will value and esteem who you are and what you've done for us, Jesus. And this is what we long for. We don't seek to be broken for sin by sin, simply for sin's sake. We don't seek to just wallow, just to feel horrible. No, we recognize that we have to be broken by these truths if we are truly to have joy unspeakable found in you. So Father, I pray that you would do whatever it takes to each one of us that the very fiber of our beings would be torn apart by the ugliness of sin so that you can put us back together in the image of your son. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen.